You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. It's no use going back to yesterday because I was a different person then. And that quote is from Lewis Curl. It's no use going back to yesterday because I was a different person then. Again, that's from Lewis Curl. And I want to welcome you to Off the Shelf for our loyal listeners. You guys, we've been on the air six, oh, 16 years. We started on Real Radio over at Blake Radio. They played that smooth jazz. And then we came over to be a podcast, but we started out on real radio. But for those who've been with us since the beginning, I, I, it's, it's hard to believe it's been 16 years. And heading for 17, but I want to thank you, thank you, thank you. And for those who are listening via iTunes, there are so many platforms we are on today all over the world. Thank you, and I want to tell you, if it's your first time, you're looking for something to do this Saturday morning, you are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show, Off the Shelf, and welcome to this Saturday. It is July already, July the 9th, and it has been a scorcher. Fortunately, it rained last night, but it has been really stifling hot here on the East Coast where I live. I don't know where where you are. I know India is dealing with heat. This climate change is no joke. I know I'm feeling it. <laughs> but I want to welcome you again to our Saturday, July the 9th show. Thank you for joining us. We have an awesome author on deck for you today, and I'm excited to introduce her, her to you. But before I do, I want to ask you that, you know, real life actually offers deeper, more complex mysteries than movies, even books. And it's not to say that books can't tell real-life mysteries in a powerful way. And, in fact, Escaping Toward Freedom is just such a mystery and expense book. It pulls that off. So to give you a little inside glimpse, Clarissa is a writer, and she's vacationing in the North Georgia mountains. They are gorgeous. And she's in some, some areas you can't get cell phone reception out there. She's trying to get her creative juices going so she can write another blockbuster novel like her last novel, which was a New York Times in an essence bestseller. She is in In the Mountains two, two full days when she spots what looks like a girl hiding by her cabin. And it's this, it's this event that literally changes her life and pulls her into a web that is based in part on real-life events, but it is absolutely shocking. I encourage you, if you love a mystery, to get a copy of Escaping Toward Freedom. It's an e-book and print, Escaping Toward Freedom. If you don't see it on your bookstore shelves, just ask the clerk or the librarian. You want to get a copy of Escaping Toward Freedom by Denise Turney. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And today's off-the-shelf guest is Julia Brewer, Brewer Daily, and she Julia has worked as a communications adjunct professor at Bell Hayden College, administrator and public relations director of the Mississippi Department of Education and Millsaps College. Additionally, Julia was the founding director of the Greater Bell Haven Market, a producers-only market. 
And as if that's not enough, she has also served as executive executive director of the Craftsmen's Guild of Mississippi. There's a woman on the go. And the organization operates the Mississippi Craft Center. Together, these organizations support as many as 300 artisans from 19 states. And Julia is also a wife, mother, and a pet lover. She is the author of the book, No Names to Be Given. You guys are going to love what she says on today's show. I learned a lot researching so so tune in tune in and there's still time for you to tell your friends your neighbors book lovers everywhere to catch off the shelf now so you don't miss an instant of what julia shares there's still time to either join via the chat room you can dial in via the phone and i give you the dial in number it is 347-994-3490 again 347-994-3490 we are, and I want to give you her website, Julia's website, and I encourage you to check her out online, is, she kept it simple, juliadaily.com, J-U-L-I-A-D-A-I-L-Y.com, J-U-L-I-A-D-A-I-L-Y.com. You can even go over there now, even as you enjoy the interview, and if you like what you see, you can bookmark her page. We are honored to have Julia Brewer Daily. Join us here on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Off the Shelf, Julia. Hello, Denise. Hello, 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 and welcome to today's show. The first few questions that I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest on the show, again, 16 years on the air when I started, I was I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I just go right in to the questions, and listeners emailed me and said, we want to know a little bit more about the guests before you go into talking about their books. So to kick it off, can you, Julia, tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Well, Denise, I grew up in Mississippi where it's very humid and very hot. I'm now in Texas where it's 103 degrees every day, but drier. And I had an idyllic childhood. I, I was adopted from a maternity home in New Orleans, and I lived in Mississippi for most of my life. I say I'm a Texan with a southern accent because we moved to Texas, and I lived most of my life in Mississippi to be buried in Texas. But I didn't realize until much later how tumultuous a time it was in the 50s and 60s in Mississippi. But, you know, like Oprah says, when you know better, you do better. And I think that is happening in my home state now. So um, I'm proud to to be a native Mississippian, even though I was born in New Orleans. I, I, I came to Mississippi at two months of age when my, my adoptive parents uh, took me there. Okay, okay. Yes, yes. And fortunately, we're all hopefully uh, uh, just learning to accept things that we need to change and then putting it, executing on those changes. Now, as a kid, born in New Orleans, coming to Mississippi, two months old, as a little girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did you see and say, oh, that's what I want to do? Well, Denise, as, as you probably know, back in those days, a woman didn't have very many choices. There were limited choices. So I thought you could be a nurse or a teacher. And since I couldn't stand the sight of blood, I became an educator. 
and I taught everything from kindergarten all the way up to the university level. Oh, good for you, though. Good for you that you kept going up. Uh, uh, I mean, either way, it's a blessing that you're you're having an impact on a child's life, uh, and, and maybe in ways that you might not imagine because you don't know what's going on in a kid's life at home. So, but good for you. You went all the way up to the uh, collegiate level. Now, who or what inspired you to pursue writing and book publishing? My mother was an English major, and my high school English teacher, Miss Smith, um, both of them taught me the love of great books. And I, I think every writer uh, ultimately wants to write. Uh, every reader ultimately wants to write the great American novel, don't you think? And I, I remember reading all of those Bobsy Twin books and Nancy Drew. You know, it's a, it's a wonder that more women are not detectives for all of us who read all the Nancy Drew detective books when we were small. But I think those two women were great influences on me to to keep a journal and to start writing at a young age. You know, I kept a diary when I was a kid. And it seemed, I always thought a lot of kids, especially little girls, kept a diary, but maybe they didn't. Now I do journal writing, and I'm so glad that I do. But I wish I had kept my childhood diaries got rid of them when I got older. Uh, when you were saying journal journal writing was part of your pursuing your your book writing, that was that made me think about when I used to write in my diary. So I want to talk about your book. Is no names to be given? And when I was researching that, I was like, wow. Is no names to be given? Is it based on real life events? It definitely is. It's memoir-like in that I am an adopted child from a maternity home hospital in New Orleans, and the story's premise is about three women who meet at a maternity home hospital in New Orleans to relinquish their babies for adoption, and it's in, uh, set in 1966. And I've carried this story in my mind for more than 40 years, and, and just last year, uh, publish the book, so it definitely has a thread of memoir running through it. What is a maternity home hospital? Never heard of that before. And do they still have those? You know, Denise, there's so many young women today who don't know about this entire era of of time. Probably from the 30s through uh, about the 80s young women who found themselves pregnant and unwed were practically forced by their families and society to go to these maternity homes and to give up their babies for adoption. So this happened to hundreds of thousands of of women during that time. It was actually named the baby scoop era because um, there was so much guilt, so much shame heaped upon these unwed mothers, and they relinquished their babies for adoption and had to look back and 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 pretend nothing happened. They had to return home. A lot of young women disappeared from their high schools, you know, and came back as if nothing happened. But of course, you know, those experiences um, left a lot of grief in these women over the years wondering what happened to their child if they gave their child to a good situation. You know, they wanted what was best for their child, and 
um, and they just hoped that they did the right thing. So the, it was it was it sounded like it was a state supported thing where you you go to this hospital if you're an unwed mother, and I guess if the father doesn't want the baby, and then or to help with it, and the parents don't the grandparents don't want to do it, and it's this somebody's paying for it, so it sounds like it's state supported. You go, you have your baby, and you just leave the hospital, and then they find a child for it. I mean, a parent for it. Yes, and there were a lot of um, religious organizations who had these homes um, thinking, you know, that they were doing a good thing, and, and many were. There were some bad situations, but, you know, there's still 400, um, maybe more than 400 maternity homes in the U.S. today. But wow. today, uh, they try to help the mothers to keep their babies, to find jobs, uh, to find child care. So it's a, it's a different situation than it was back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Oh, my goodness. You know what? This thing about off, off the shelf, I learned so much from the different guests we have on the show. So I was going to ask you, and maybe you, based on your own experience, well, you were a child, so you probably would have had to talk to somebody to get these details because you were a, an infant. Did you research these forced adoptions and events like the orphan train movement? I, we had another guest going, and she wrote a book, and it was based on the orphan train movement. I had never even heard of it. It's amazing how this stuff happens in the country, and it's like this hidden history. Nobody ever talks about it. So did you research these, these forced adoptions, again, and events like the orphan train movement before you actually sat down to write no names to be given? Oh, yes. There are. I mean, women's issues have always been at the forefront for generations. This is not new what the country is experiencing right now. It's been going on for a long, long time, but there are so many secrets. And I myself searched and found my uh, biological mother, um, and that was like 45 years ago. Well, if I had written the book at that time, it would have been a sensation because nobody was searching and finding um, these birth mothers. Uh, records were sealed. I don't know if you know what that means if you're not familiar with the adoption process, but when a couple adopts a child, the, the birth certificate is changed to reflect that they actually gave birth to that child. So the, the original birth certificate with the biological mother's name on it is sealed in, in you're not able to ever receive those again unless wow. you live in an open, open record state, and there aren't that um, many of those. But uh, luckily for me, I was born in Louisiana that still had a Napoleonic law on the books that said that uh, an adopted child can inherit from their natural parents. Well, you can't inherit from somebody you don't know. So that was a loophole that opened those records to me, and I received my original birth certificate, and I was able to search for my birth mother. And I met her, and she gave me my birth father's name and told me the reason that they relinquished me for adoption well back then she was catholic he was jewish and that was unheard of that was not going to happen both both parents 
on both sides of the family said, absolutely not. This will not take place. So he went back home to Chicago. She was um, forced to give me up for adoption. And then all these years later, when all of these DNA kits, commercial kits became available, I um, got one of those and took it. And I received a message through that company that said the reference line read, are you my sister? Well, that will get your attention. So sure enough, um, my half-sister, my biological father's uh, daughter, got in touch with me. And so a lot of secrets, uh, Denise, are coming to the forefront. If you take a DNA kit uh, test, you need to be prepared for the secrets that can rise to the surface. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you know what? You might say, I had no idea. So let me ask you this, and I don't want to get off, because I definitely want to talk about the book, and thank you for writing it. Because even if you don't hear from people, I mean, I wasn't adopted, but even if you don't hear from people, I can only imagine how the impact that reading this story would have on somebody who is looking for their parent. And some who may never, like you said, the records are sealed. They may never know where their parent is. And then if you gave your child up for adoption, I saw a story about a, a black woman. She was raised by a white family. And they just they had one biological child. They had decided they were going to adopt. And they adopted maybe seven kids, all different backgrounds, everything. God bless them. God bless them. But the one girl grew up, and she wanted to meet her biological mother. And she first the mother denied her. She said, no, you're not my child. And then she they met the family, and she admitted she was. But the mother wanted to know about another daughter she put up for adoption. And they told her the records were like what you said. See, they told the mother that, and the mother couldn't find out where her other daughter was. But no names to be given, no names to be given. I mean, this is life-changing. This is real, talking about people's lives. Why, why do you think women were made to feel so much shame if they were became pregnant, something we say is just natural. Be fruitful and multiply. I mean, I know there's a lot of religion attached to it. Why do you think that was? And then the fathers were not heaped with that same level of shame, and that still happens today. Oh, you know, Denise, uh, men have always been given a pass. You know, they get patted on the back for their exploits, but the women have to carry the burden of um, what happens in that relationship. And and it was, I think, religious um, upbringing that, that caused a lot of the shame and the guilt for, for people becoming pregnant before they were married. And the entire society felt that way. I mean, it was just a totally different time than we have today. And, and that's why when young women read my book, they're just... Um, incredulous you know they're just how could this happen what do you mean you give up your first child I don't understand why who made you do this they have so many questions and that has been my favorite part of writing this book is you know being able to zoom into people's living rooms and do book clubs with them and have these discussions because they were like you they had never even heard 
of these times that women had to go through and and giving up their firstborns to strangers, you know, like a gift. And it, it was very interesting to talk to people. When I talked to my birth mother and found out more about um, what living in one of these homes was like, you know, and I've had people reach out to me. Uh, a woman wrote to me from California who had been uh, in that same maternity home to relinquish her son for adoption um, that I was born in. So, you know, I've heard from people um, from all different aspects of adoption, from the birth mothers to adoptees to adoptive parents. You know, it's it's touched a real nerve with a lot of, of the different uh, aspects of adoption and how complex this this adoption uh, issue is. Oh, my goodness. Again, I, I thank you. And some people will silently work through uh, what they might have tried to w- turn away from after they read No Names to be Given. Uh, where did you get the courage uh, to deal with this topic while writing No Names to be Given? Sometimes we just want to, we don't want nobody to know. Uh, where did you get the courage to to deal with this? Well, it was it was a little therapeutic to put these words down on paper because you have you have emotions living so deep inside your core that you really don't address them for for many many years. You know, something can be festering inside you and you don't know what it is or what causes you to do certain things in your life and and I just wanted to explore adoption. I didn't want to write it as a memoir. I wanted to uh, couch it in fiction to take a little step back and to be able to um, have my characters from all different walks of life to show that these women didn't just come from lower economic status, but they were from upper economic status. And they're Families treated them all the same. You know, they they had to give up these children for adoption and and save the family the shame that that they had heaped on their heads. And I, I just wanted to take a step back. It, also, it was not my story to tell um, because my um, birth mother was still alive and she had children that she had not told. So these secrets were still living. Ah you know, long after I was an adult, and I didn't want to, you know, step into their own story and to announce that to the world um, if she wasn't ready to. And when I met her, Denise, I I told her that I'd had a wonderful childhood. I thanked her for giving me life. And uh, she was so excited to meet me and to find out you know, what my life had been like because she said that she prayed in every cathedral in Europe that I was in a good situation because she would see a, she would see a story about child abuse and she would wonder, you know, did I give my child to that type of situation? So, you know, she, she worried all of her life. Um, wondering if she had done the right thing. So I was I was glad to put her mind at at rest yeah. about that and to tell her I I had had a, a a good a good childhood. Oh, what a blessing! Now, what time period is No Names to Be Given in, and why did you choose this particular time period? 
Well, my own adoption was in the 50s, but I pushed it forward into the 60s to begin the story so that the maternity home was uh, like the one that my birth mother was in when she relinquished me. But I wanted to push it forward enough so that it could get close to the DNA kits because I wanted those to come into play as well. So I pushed it into the 60s and it, it spans 25 years. These women give up their babies for adoption and then they're brought back together by a blackmailer who threatens to expose their secrets all the way to the White House. Wow. So, um, I, I did use that, that window of time to, to show uh, that secrets were still being kept. Oh, my goodness. This sounds so, so exciting. Now, can you introduce us? Tell us about their personalities. What, what, what are these women like? What are their, their relationships with their parents like, the fathers of the children? Can you introduce us to the three women who are expected to give their children up for adoption? At, these, uh, at this maternity home hospital in New Orleans, how old are they and what are their personalities like? They're all very young. They're all um, 17, 18 years old. And uh, one came from Illinois. She uh, had a bad situation with a stepfather in her life, and so she ran away mm. from home. And she became an exotic dancer on Bourbon Street in New Orleans and fell in love with a mob boss. And uh, so that was a lower economic um, situation. But uh, two of my characters were upper class um, families. One was an evangelical minister's daughter who um, he was kind of modeled after Billy Graham, you know, an internationally known minister whose daughter um, became pregnant through an assault. And, um, and then uh, a young woman from North Carolina from um, a very nice horse raising farm there who went to the University of, of North Carolina and fell in love and had a biracial relationship. So, of course, that was very taboo back then. And she was forced to give up her baby for adoption. Okay. And how are these women, their personalities, how are they? Or like is, is one of them timid or is one of them really bold? In what ways are they alike? And how are they different in, when you think about their strengths, their fears? How are they different? How are they like? Is in, are any of them like really bold? And I know this is in the... 60s, but there were women who were like bold back then, just like all times there have been women who were very bold, regardless of what goes on in society. Some women are just very timid, and some people, men and women, take all their cues from their family and the, the world around them as if they have no mind of their own. So I'm just curious what these women, what they're like, and how do they play off of each other? Well, that's so interesting that you asked that, Denise, because um, I had um, some of the book club members I've discussed the book with talk about that um, two of my characters' families were very much alike. And I said, well, <laughs> I hate to say this, but back in the 50s and 60s, most families in the upper-class families, even middle-class families, 
were very much alike. They, I mean, you would not be able to tell them apart because everybody followed these same invisible rules, these same guidelines for their lives. And society, you know, pushed them along in the same path. And so they were very much alike, and they, they did have to march to those same drum beats that their family set for them. Now, the character who came from Illinois and ran away and was an exotic dancer, she was quite bold, and she uh, became quite um, a strong businesswoman and owned her own uh, club there in New Orleans and, and became kind of the mother figure for these other two women who came to the maternity home that she met. She took them under her wing and kind of became their camp counselor, if you will, during their time in the maternity home. And I've been told by these um, birth mothers who actually lived in these maternity homes that you became very close to the women uh, you were in that situation with. It was kind of like being in a foxhole in battle, you know, with these uh, people that, that you got to know so well, even though sometimes these maternity homes would change their names, not even let them have their same names or talk about where they were from. I mean, the secrets were so, you know, so thick there that they had to be so careful that anybody might find out that this happened to them. Wow! Oh my goodness! Oh, oh my goodness! <laughs> Just listening. So, when do when you do you you start the story? No names to be given. Does the book start when the girls are teenagers and they're pregnant and they're in the maternity home hospital? Is that where it starts? And how old are they when no names to be given ends? They the the story begins um, with a prologue, and I know that is, um, you know, um, sometimes people say they hate prologues. They don't want you to use prologues. But I love prologues. Every time I pick up a book, it kind of immerses you into uh, what's going to happen, give you a kind of a glimpse, especially in thrillers, you know, what's to come, and then you look forward to it as you go through the chapter. So it actually begins in the maternity home with the women just having given birth to their babies. And then uh, chapter one begins in chronological order back in the 60s when these girls were in high school living at home with their parents. And it shows you the progression of when they met the, the men who would impregnate them. And then it's, um, it goes all the way into um, after they leave the maternity home, give up their babies for adoption and return home, and it follows their lives um, through the next 20, 20 years. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. And and I have to ask you this now, then. Do you also follow at any point the lives of their babies? Yes. In fact, that was um, a little note of contention between me and my editor she said I want you just to make this novel about the three women just follow them you don't have to bring the adoptees into the story I said wait a minute I'm one of those adoptees I I do think we play into the story we 
We do want to find out. I think if, if I had just stayed with the women and not found out what happened to their children, I think the reader would have been very dismayed and always questioning, you know, what happened to these children? Do they, you know, end up in great places or not so good places? Because, you know, I tell everybody if they're going to begin a search to find out um, their origin story, um, they need to be prepared, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst because not every situation is going to be a good one. And those um, birth mothers, you know, did keep secrets and like mine had not told her children. So when I found her, she had to introduce me to her children. So, you know, you may not find a good situation and you just have to be prepared for that, and you have to know whether or not you're a personality who can withstand, um, you know, knowing um, that that might might be a less than perfect situation for you. Mm. Yeah, we all have secrets, and so uh, different things at different times you have to accept. I think it's good because they say it takes energy to keep a secret. So when you let it go, you get you free that energy up, and you can move forward with your life, but be prepared because you could, you could go find your biological mother like on that show I saw, and she could initially say, no, I'm not your mother. And then later she's ready and she can say, yeah, yes, I am. Is this a mystery? It's sounding a bit like a mystery. Is no names to be given a, 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 a mystery? Is there, is there some big gold nugget mystery hidden in this story? Well, there's definitely some thriller elements in it. I I have become hooked on the thriller bug, and I devour thriller audiobooks. I ride my bike every day for about 33 miles, and so I listen to all of these thriller novels, and I think that implanted a little nugget in my head uh, to, to incorporate some of that into the book. So I think it, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. Okay. Can you introduce us to some of the other major and minor characters who help drive drive no names to be given forward? Well, definitely the parents do, especially um, Faith is, is the daughter of the evangelical minister, and her mother is uh, a very important character in the book. And like I said, they they want to pretend it didn't happen to their child. You know, these parents dropped these women off at this maternity home and they had no contact with them for six to eight months. And um, and so they pick them back up and they say, are you okay? And they say, yes, I'm fine. And that's the last time it's discussed. And that is very true to life and, and how that actually happened from what I understand. And so she comes into play um, later on in the book with with a section that people cheer for when that happens. But definitely um, the parents, especially um, when the North Carolina parents found out that their daughter has had a biracial uh, relationship, you know, and how they berate her for that. Um, mm. And then she ends up, um, marrying someone and going all the way to the White House. So her husband has a lot to to play in the book as well, being president of the United States. Um, so it, it becomes very interesting and 
you know, all those secrets that we hear about now uh, in the news, you know, everything is so um, instant news now. Um, we, we know what happened to someone practically as it's happening. But back then, uh, n- that was not happening. Things were not reported um, every minute. So secrets were, were definitely kept and, and didn't come to light unless people wanted them to. And, you know, that's what I'm hearing now with these DNA kits. The, the most prevalent thing that comes to light is that people who who thought that their biological father um, was their father all their life, they find out he's not their biological father. Oh, my God. And that, that is happening so much. And for, oh. or for people not to tell their children that they were adopted and then for them to find out as an adult can be devastating. You know, your whole well, life yeah. was built on a lie. So um, those are all coming to into play with these commercial DNA kits. Let me ask you this: When you get when you do a DNA, because I had thought about it, I told a friend of mine she's does does the research in the family tree, and she's done it for decades. I said I don't want to know about no health health stuff. She said it depends on what you check off, what you tell them you you really want to focus on. But they, how would you know that your parent wasn't your parent through a DNA test? How well, would you know that? With the with these commercial kits, it matches you up with second, third cousins, um, and then if there is a close sibling match or a close parental match, it will show up on there. It won't give you an address or anything like that, but it'll say, you know, John D. Um, oh is your God. parental match. And see, that's what happened when my um, half-sister contacted me. It showed up as a sibling match, and um, and she knew that, that she only had one sister, or she thought she only had one oh sister. Oh, my gosh. The same thing happened on my uh, biological father's side of the family. A first cousin reached out to me. He's a professor in California, and he said, you know, who are you? I know all of my first cousins. And I said, well... Not necessarily. I'm on the wrong side of the the family tree, and I explained to him, and he had actually grown up with my biological father in Chicago and was able to kind of introduce me to my biological father's side of the family. So that that has been a lot of fun. (laughs) Bless you, bless you. (laughs) Now, are, are any of the fathers... Do any of the fathers have a lot at stake? They, is this a reason why they want to hide in indiscretion? That they have way, don't 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 get a story away, but they have way too much to lose if any of the fathers it was found out they are the father of the child. Well, definitely, um, uh, all of them do, and um, it would be a, a spoiler alert if I told you exactly why, but. Um, definitely they are all intertwined together and the fathers oh end up having end up having a lot to a lot to lose. Um one of course with the assault, um, he would definitely be put in prison, um, if that had come to light. If if it wasn't a he said, she said kind of situation, you know. 
But yeah, they they definitely have a lot to lose in this. Oh book. my God, this story is. Hey, gotta read this story. No name <laughs> to be given. Can you tell us about? So tell us about some of the places where the story unfolds. Does it open in New Orleans or Mississippi? Where where are some of the places that readers get to travel as they read? No names to be given. Definitely uh, centers in the southeast part of the country, um, from North Carolina, New Orleans, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, um, Birmingham, Alabama, all the way to Washington, D.C. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So you, and you, you give descriptions of these locations back in the 60s, what's going on. That's one thing I do love about some novels. I'm, I can read a novel, and I can feel like I've been to that city. Because a lot of lot of the novelists, they will research and research, especially people who write historical novels. And they've told me, if you p- people who know history and they really follow a historical novels, they say if you say a diner had a certain kind of napkin in 1932, they will tell you no, they didn't have those napkins until 1938. <laughs> so you got to really yes. do your research. And when you read those novels, it's like you're really experiencing that area, what it was like during that time. And I knew all of those areas. I I know all of those areas intimately. I've either lived there or my children have lived there. Um, So I I even mentioned some of the restaurants that were open at those times, Um, you know, what we ate back then, you know, at Commander's Palace in New Orleans, um, if anyone has ever eaten there, used to have a turtle soup that they flamed. And so as a child, I wanted to eat at Commander's to watch them flame that turtle soup. And I don't know if I enjoyed the flaming more than the soup, actually, but um, that's in the book. You know, things that I remember from my childhood in these different restaurants in New Orleans, because Commander's Palace was actually on the, located on the same street as the maternity home where I was born. And so in the summer times, my parents would take me to New Orleans to see where I was born because um, my family had one of those old adoption syndromes where um, they were told they would never be able to have children. And back then, you had to give a letter from your doctor that said you were infertile for you to be able to adopt a child. And so wow. they um, had this this letter, and they were told they would never have children. So they adopted me. And 19 months later, my brother was born, and 10 oh years my. later, my sister. So they knew the hospitals where they were born. So my parents wanted me to have that same uh, origin place. And so we would go to New Orleans, and we would uh, do all the New Orleans tourist uh, things and we would go to Commander's Palace and then we would go down Turnty Home and walk in and look at the nursery where the babies were and and see where I had been born. And that's oh in the story. Goodness. That's uh, one of the adoptees is is pretty much based verbatim on some of my childhood experiences as an adoptee. And so um, that's actually where I began my launched for this book, I went to New Orleans to that maternity home that's now condos, but there's still a plaque on the maternity home building that says that 
that they might live and I propped my book up against it and that's where I began my my sentimental journey of launching this book is where I began my life and then I went to Uh, Mississippi to my little hometown in Mississippi where the library is named for my mother and I did an author talk there so it was a real sentimental journey of, of where I was born and where I grew up and 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 it's all woven into the fiction of this book. Oh my gosh, no names to be given you guys by Julia Brew Brewer Daily. Check her website out Julia Daily, J U L I A D A I L Y dot com. What what a powerful story. Now, at your website you offer resources for people who are dealing with adoption. I can't even imagine if I took my DNA and it did say one of my parents I thought, well, I, oh my gosh, what would I do? So, but at your, at your, you offer resource people dealing with adoption. What advice could you share with parents of recently adopted children and adults who might be dealing with the fact that, especially if they recently found out they're adopted? You know, this is so personal to me, and millions of people have adoption in their immediate family and I hope that this story um, that they know that this story that I've written sparks a conversation about this complex topic of adoption because um, not all adoptees have wonderful childhoods and great situations but I certainly did and most of the people I've interviewed you know have had Uh, great situations but they still as adults want to know um, where they came from you know we all have um, a desire to know our maker whether that's a higher power or just the parents who gave birth to you you still have this desire inside you to know where you came from and so I would say to people who are adopting children because my own daughter believes in adoption and she adopted four older children after she had had two of her own and um, they were 10, 8, 16 and 12 when, when she adopted them and um, they've blended beautifully into our family, and we're we feel complete um, because we have them in our family. And of course, they have questions, and we try to answer all their questions. We would never keep secrets from them, and would offer them any anything that they would like to know about being adopted. So I just think that adoptive parents should should be open and say, of course, you know, we didn't give birth to you but um, you grew in our heart, and we wanted you to be a part of our family. And, um, and then people who are giving up their children for adoption, I think, is, is the ultimate gift, you know, for you to want what's better for your child, whatever situation you're in. A lot of people, um, if they're uh, dealing with addiction or, you know, horrific issues in their life and they want to relinquish a child for adoption then you know of course giving your child to a better situation is is certainly a a huge gift so I applaud them if they can do that Um, it doesn't do away with the grief and the worry that you're going to have all of your life um, but at least you you hope that that your child is going to have a, a better life than you could give give to them. Yeah. And it's also possible to do an adoption and sometimes the adoptive parent 
and the natural born will still both be involved in the child's life to some degree. I've also heard of that. Now, I wanted to ask you, have you ever looked into why adoption? I mean, and and I'm so happy you had a a good experience, like that girl on that show I watched. Her adoptive parents were just amazing. Have you ever looked into why adoption is so so expensive? I had a a former colleague who they were looking into adoption. They were redoing their home, and it's just so expensive. Have you ever looked into why is it why is it so expensive, especially when you consider how many children there are in foster care and orphanages in the world? You know, I think bringing children in from other countries is definitely so expensive, and my own daughter did that. So there's a lot of expense, a lot of red tape, a lot that you have to go to go through to um to receive those children, but I hope that this book calls attention to the hundreds of thousands of older children who are in the foster care system in this country who so desire a home. And I I think that they can be adopted for not a a lot of money. And I, I just hope that people will consider, you know, looking at these older children and adopting them. You know, adopting infants has always been a large expense whether uh, somebody's going to pay the expenses for the uh, the pregnant teenager, you know, to have this baby or what, but um, but there have always been a lot of expenses. Even these maternity homes, um, the parents back in the 60s, a couple of hundred dollars was a lot of money, and they had to pay for their daughters to stay in those maternity homes. So there's always been a money trail associated with, um, infants, but I, I think that people can find older children and and experience a wonderful, loving relationship with them and build their family um, with the older children. Oh, you're such a blessing. What have readers been saying about no names to be given? What have you been hearing from readers? Well, that's my favorite part when all these people reach out to me and and tell me, you've written my story or, you know, I've been worried about this child that I placed for adoption and you've made me feel better because, you know, you told your story through the um, the character of Julie in the story. And, and that's just been my favorite part. And also just educating these younger women who have never heard about this history and to for them to just, you know, reach out to me and say, thank you so much for sharing this with us because we had no idea that women were facing this just not that many years ago, you know, in the last 50 years in this country. Yeah. yeah. Now, will there be a sequel to No Names to be Given? A lot of people have asked me um if I would write a sequel to this and follow the adoptees, you know, into their lives. Um, I've written my second novel, though, because I've become so enamored with the ranches and all the family history for generations owning the land here in Texas. So my my second novel is actually going to um, launch on November 1st, and it's called The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch, and it's about the um, heiress to the largest ranch in Texas who stumbles upon an ancient people living on her property. Wow. 
Oh, that sounds interesting. What, when when is that story set in? What time period? It's present day. It's a contemporary oh. ranch with um, with an ancient secret. <laughs> you like mysteries. You just say you like fillers. Now you do you do so much. You're you're you are you you're are you fully retired? Number one, as an educator, or are you still teaching? And are you writing novels now full time? Well, I've been writing novels since I retired a couple of years ago. And this year I have also started my own podcast. And it's to pay it forward. You, As you know, you don't make any money on these podcasts, but you um, become uh, patrons, advocates for other authors. And that's what I've done. You know, I've seen lots of um, awards for under 30 or under 40, but I see very few for those of us over the age of 50. And so my podcast is called Authors Over 50, and it's to celebrate those, those of us who have written our first book after the age of 50. And Denise, people have come out of the woodwork. I have never experienced such a rush of people who want to be on this podcast to celebrate their successes uh, over the age of 50. I have interviewed doctors and attorneys and MBAs and people from uh, several different countries. And so it's just it's been just a delight to help promote them, as you do, um, all these authors who who want to get their uh, information out there and people to read their work. I've I've interviewed people in their 80s and 90s, and wow. I think writing is like swimming. I think we can do it the rest of our lives, and they are just still creating beautiful work. Yes, yes. So uh, we're coming down to like uh, only about seven minutes left, and I had uh, several other questions I want to ask you, and I won't get around in time to all of them, but could you tell us what the Greater Bellhaven Market is? What does this organization do? Well, it began um, many years ago, probably 20 years ago, and is a producers-only farmer's market. And at the time in Mississippi, we we didn't have that was uh, strictly a producer's market. You know, people could bring in fruit and vegetables from Florida or places like that. And this uh, producers-only market was in a historic neighborhood there in in uh, downtown Jackson, and uh, so I was the founding director of it so that everybody who um, sold their produce there or their craft or anything that they made, it had to come from them. It had to be um, grown by them, and so that was the producers-only market. Okay. You do so much to support others. Now, can you tell us about the Craftsman Guild of Mississippi? How does this organization support artists, and what type of artists do they aim to support? Well, that was probably my favorite job I ever had as executive director of the Craftsman's Guild of Mississippi. Um, we built this gorgeous uh, contemporary uh, steel and glass and concrete building on the Natchez Trace that runs, you know, from Nashville down to Natchez, and um, and it's on that 
that trace if anybody wants to drop in and see the incredible work that these craftsmen over 300 craftsmen from 19 different states as you said and I would write their stories to introduce them to the public and fundraise to um, maintain this gorgeous building that had all of their work in there it's all 3d work it's you know, glass blowers and leather makers and um, pottery and um, wood craft, you know, all the 3D um, art that you can imagine by these fine, fine, talented, highly talented artisans. You can, oh. you can buy their work there. You can take classes there. It's, it's one of Mississippi's really um, star attractions. Okay, and you would say, and thank you for your the work that you did with it. Now, can you share before we wrap up uh, three to four steps, Julia, that you found to be effective at getting the word out about your books? Well, these days, you know, you have to be all into social media, and so I think some of the the virtual book tours have helped to get my name out there. So I would say the virtual book tours are important. Um, I think that writing articles for journals or for magazines um, has helped to um, talk about these topics like adoption and also draw people to my book. So writing articles is is most helpful. Um, and then I think being around the public in person, now that we don't have to um, worry about COVID as much, um, they're starting to open back the libraries and the bookstores, and I think um, going to those and to you know to meet your reader when when a reader finds you and they're not a, a family member or a friend and they just have picked up your book and they love it that's just so gratifying and to meet them in person and to be able to sign a personal note to them in a book is is very gratifying for um, for a writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where where can our listeners get co- get a copy of No Names to Be Given and your other book? Tell us again when the, uh, your second book is due to be out, so people can look for for it. The second book's going to launch on November first, the fifth daughter of Thorn Ranch. If you like Yellowstone, that people are watching on TV now, you'll like this book. But No Names is available wherever. Fine books are sold from Amazon to Barnes and Noble and Target and and all the independent bookstores um, and everywhere online where books are sold. And do you have any upcoming speaking engagements you can share with us? Well, I'm always uh, going to book clubs, and so if anybody wants to contact me about uh, zooming in to to book clubs with them. I go to the Mississippi Book Festival, the Texas Book Festival. So I'm, I'm around everywhere, and you can check those out on my website to find out where Julia's going to be next. <laughs> and lastly, let us know what social media networks. For, you're generally on the most, so folks, they want to follow you on social media. Which ones are, can they catch you on? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook are the ones that I focus on. So they can they can just Google me, or um, I come up just about everywhere. Okay, we have had the absolute pleasure. And if you came in midstream, as I say, no worries. 
when the when this show finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to it in the archives as much as you want. Share it with other people. What an important important topic. This is a mystery that she just loves thrillers and mysteries, and you can hear it and picks these powerful and empowering topics. No names to be given. No names to be given. Remember that title, you guys. No names to be given by Julia Daly. Please visit her online at J-U-L-I-A-D-A-I-L-Y. And we're just honored to have had her here and thank her for the work that she has done and continues to do. And I thank each of you for listening here and supporting Off the Shelf. Remember, at Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time, just set set your Put a note on your calendar. Put a reminder out there for yourself that you're going to catch Off the Shelf Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And as I always tell you, you are awesome. You're amazing. You really, really are incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday at 11 a.m. Julie, I'll send you an email when the show finishes streaming. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye for now. <laughs>